Hi, this is Alan Shartok. Delighted to be in conversation today with my old friend, Dr. Rob Moraldi, an award-winning journalist and author who has taught at the State University of New York College at New Paltz for 30 years. He's considered one of the nation's foremost experts on the history and practice of investigative reporting. He has served as chair of the Department of Communication and Media and overseen New Paltz's journalism program for many years. In 1992, he was a Fulbright Scholar, lecturing on the American press in the Netherlands. Professor Moraldi also helped develop the college's first endowed professorship named after newspaper entrepreneur James H. Ottaway. And he oversaw the professorship for its first decade, recruiting Pulitzer Prize-winning and award-winning journalists to come to the college and teach on the New Paltz campus. But Dr. Robert Moraldi is here today because of his latest book, Scoop Artist, The World According to Seymour Hirsch, From My Lie to Abu Ghraib, published by Potomac Books, University of Nebraska Press. It is the first full-length book on Hirsch, who is an icon in American journalism. Some of Professor Moraldi's other work includes Beyond the Killing Fields, an anthology of the war reporting of Sidney Shanberg, published in 2010 by Potomac Books. The Pen is Mightier, The Muckraking Life of Charles Edward Russell, published by Palgrave, St. Martin's Press. The biography recreates the turbulent and controversial life of a forgotten but once famous turn-of-the-century investigator reporter who wrote 31 books and hundreds of magazine articles. Russell, who lived from 1860 to 1941, won the Pulitzer Prize in 1927. Professor Moraldi also edited an anthology that collects 50 years of stories written by author Roger Kahn entitled Beyond the Boys of Summer, the Very Best of Roger Kahn. The book was published in 2005 by McGraw-Hill and received sterling reviews. Professor Moraldi is married to Mary Beth Pfeiffer, an award-winning newspaper reporter, and they live in the historic hamlet of Stone Ridge, New York. Welcome, Rob. Thank you, Al. Nice to be back with you here. Well, we've done several interviews over the years, haven't we? And I'm always delighted to see you here because you can always hold your own. The book is Seymour Hirsch, Scoop Artist. You know Cy Hirsch pretty well. Let's start and just educate everybody. Let's go through some of his major contributions. The story that he's most famous for, and uh, this is for good and for bad, and, you know, on his, uh, there's a cliche when you win the Pulitzer Prize, no matter what you do in the rest of your life, when you, your obituary is written, it will say, Seymour Hirsch, winner of the Pulitzer Prize for his expose on the My Lai Massacre. And he's most known for the 1969 uh, series of stories he did on the My Lai Massacre. And that, of course, was in Vietnam, where American soldiers mostly headed up by one sergeant who herded up uh, nearly 500, as it turned out, civilians, old women, old men, young children, and shot and killed them, buried them in a ditch. When a little boy tried to crawl away from under his mother, they shot him, and it was just probably the most horrid event of the Vietnam War, and no one knew about it. Hirsch, through incredibly relentless pursuit, nearly a year later, based on a tip, pursued the story, tracked it down. The first three chapters of the book, by the way, recount this, and exposed the fact that American soldiers had, had been involved in this. And, of course, later on, the government tried to cover it up. And then he wins the Pulitzer Prize in 1969. So he's most famous for that. The bookends of the book, however, are in the year 2008. He also exposes the fact that we had tortured civilians in prison in Abu Ghraib. And so, although, as he points out, Abu Ghraib does not compare to My Lai, here it is many years later. Cy Hirsch is now 76 years old, and he's been you know, doing this for 40 years. So you go from 1968, 
all the way up to 2008, and these are kind of this the bookends of the book. But in between, there's so much controversy and so many different kinds of stories. He goes to work for the New York Times in 1972. Milan Masker, 1968 and 1969. He then works for uh, Eugene McCarthy. And he had always wanted to work for the Times. Always wanted to work for the Times, yes. even though many people considered him to be kind of not a Times kind of guy. And in fact, you do a great job of recounting how he fought like the devil with some of the, his editors at the time. Clearly, Sulzberger Sr. did not like Cy Hirsch and had a lot of difficulty with not only his manner, but I think in some ways he was stepping on some of Sulzberger's friends' toes. So that was really a prob problematic time. But he always wanted to work. He knew the reach of the New York Times. And most importantly, he knew the impact he could have. He, he knew that if once he got to the New York Times, he could have this amazing impact. He also, you know, gets a bum rap in some ways as this liberal journalist. He's a very cautious, very conservative journalist. And as he says time and time again, it just doesn't matter what I think, and my opinion means nothing. In fact, in my interviews with him, you know, he didn't want to talk about his opinion. It's not about my opinion. It's about my facts. It's about my stories. It's about what I find and expose. And so in some ways, he is very much a Times kind of guy. But he goes to work for Eugene McCarthy after the My Lai Massacre story because he was actually kind of in between jobs. McCarthy is running for the presidency, trying to get the Democratic nomination for the presidency, uh, trying to unseat uh, uh, unpopular Lyndon Johnson over the Vietnam War. He doesn't have a press secretary, a friend of Hirsch's, connects him. And there he goes to work in November of like 1967, that would be, in the famous, you know, really famous campaign up in the snows of New Hampshire, where McCarthy basically runs against Johnson dead heat. And his press person is uh, Cy Hirsch. Typically, of course, Hirsch bumps heads with McCarthy. He doesn't think McCarthy is tough enough on uh, race issues. They get to the Wisconsin primary. He wants McCarthy to go into the black community in Milwaukee. McCarthy says, no, it's not my style. It's just for show. And uh, Hirsch quits, makes page one of the New York Times. Cy Hirsch quits the staff. It was actually a blow for, for McCarthy. So he leaves there, and now he's trying to figure out what to do. He writes two books on Me Lie. And then in 1972, the Times basically recruits him. The background to the, the Times recruiting him is they're getting their butts beat by the Washington Post on the Watergate story. Mm -hmm. they, well, Woodward and Bernstein are just, you know, really handing it to the New York Times. The New York Times is humiliated. They're really angry. Their Washington Bureau is just not really keeping up, although they're close, but they just can't keep up. And they hire Seymour Hersh to become their investigative reporter. Abe Rosenthal, you know, says, okay, I need a guy who's going to help us keep up. Ironic. But as you point out, I'm sorry, Rob, yeah. but yeah. as you point out in the book, the Times had not been particularly known for being out front on investigative journalism. No, and I think even today, uh, you know, Hersh has made this criticism consistently. They're, they're not an investigative reporter. Back then, they were the paper of record, which meant if something happened, they covered it. And, of course, today, they're you know, similar in some ways. They're less about the paper of record because, the, you know, the stories because of the Internet and changes in, in journalism have changed. But nonetheless, they're still not a muckraking kind of paper. They're still not an investigative kind of publication. But they get Hirsch for that purpose to try to catch them up. Ironically, Hirsch doesn't want the Watergate story. He says, I don't know any of the names of these people. I don't know Haldeman from Ehrlichman. I don't really know who these people are. It's not my cup of tea. We're way behind. I don't want to touch this story. And they let him start to do other stories. And, of course, not a bad thing for them because he starts to break one big story after another. His first big story for the New York Times in 1972 is he, he basically finds out that General John Lavelle um, was engaging in a cover-up of bombings 
in Vietnam. And this is a story, you know, we've heard so many times, so many times over and over. We're hearing, you know, many of the stories Hirsch wrote back in the day. We're hearing them today. But this is the first time we kind of get this sense that the Nixon administration, this is kind of a, for them, it was a precursor to Watergate. They were rehearsing their Watergate cover-up. They were bombing illegally in Cambodia and other places, and they were basically enlisting without really saying it. They were enlisting the military to engage in very elaborate cover-ups of the documents so that no one would know the bombing was taking place. Yeah, but when you say it was a dress rehearsal for the Watergate cover-up, they didn't know they were going to have to deal with the Watergate. They were just covering up, and as you you point out quite correctly, they also had a history of cover-up. Yeah, but what you see is in there in some of the White House transcripts, I was able to look at, you know, the White House transcript tapes of, of the conversations. You could see Nixon and Kissinger kind of trying to play around with how do we get ourselves out of this jam with Lavelle? Why did he do this? You could just see the thing that would emerge later, Nixon trying to figure out. And, and again, ironically, you know, some way similar to Watergate, perhaps if he had come right out to people right away with Watergate, he might have walked away from that. And here, it would have been very logical for them to explain what Lavallee had done and why. However, they simply tried to use a cover-up instead of an explanation. You write in your book that Henry Kissinger uh, would not talk to Seymour Hersh for most of his life. Why yeah. is that? Hersh was known as Henry's nemesis. Uh, from early in the 1970s, he was eyeing the Lavallee story. He began to eye Henry Kissinger. And then there was the, there was the cover-up of the uh, illegal bombing in Cambodia. He was eyeing Henry Kissinger. He became obsessed with Henry Kissinger. And, of course, and, you know, he writes a book called The Price of Power, Kissinger and the Nixon White House, which is a devastating, devastating attack. Many years later, he writes this on Henry Kissinger. It probably prevented Kissinger from becoming Secretary of State under the Reagan administration. He was angling to come back. But this book would have opened up all sorts of a whole can of worms. And so that, that was unlikely that he was going to get that. So Kissinger, you know, hated he actually did talk indirectly to Hirsch during the, his New York Times years. I, I learned through a number of different places that Alexander Haig was the go-between for Hirsch with Kissinger. So if he had a story that was going to appear on page one of the New York Times and it implicated Kissinger or he needed to know something about Kissinger or the National Security Council's approach to things, he would call Haig. Haig would come in, they'd sit down, they'd talk, and then Haig would go to Kissinger, and Kissinger would give him the word, and the word would come back to Hirsch. And Haig's job at the time, just for filling it in. Haig was the uh, top aide in the National Security Council to Kissinger. He eventually becomes chief of staff for Richard Nixon mm-hmm. during the whole the Watergate. Or as the old saying goes, I'm in charge. Yes, and the man who's <laughs> probably most famous for that comment, I'm in charge, and becomes Secretary of State under Ronald Reagan. There's an interesting anecdote in the story, uh, in the book, and those guys were all tricky and smart. Cy Hirsch is Jewish, although he says he's not particularly religious, uh, and, and his family you know, didn't really grow up in that milieu. And he always says it's also irrelevant because I write facts. You know, My religion is not going to enter into it. But Haig calls him into his office, and he's trying to call him off on a story he's writing about Henry Kissinger, a very damning, very devastating story. And it was about wiretapping, uh, which hadn't come out. And he breaks the story about his, you know, the wiretapping of, of his staff, which eventually he kind of concedes and has to concede in a lawsuit, but that's many years later. And Haig pulls him into the office, and he sits down with him, and he says, a Seymour, let's talk about this. And Cy says, he had called me Cy or Hirsch, and now suddenly I was Seymour. And he says, don't you know that Henry Kissinger's family was a victim of the Holocaust? Do you think this man, a vic- you're Jewish, he says, you're Jewish. 
would a man like Henry Kissinger ever do something like this? And I said, they were pulling the Jew card on me. They were trying to basically use my being Jewish to ally themselves with Henry Kissinger. Didn't work with Cy Hirsch, and you know, everybody tried a lot of things with Cy Hirsch, and he's one of the most independent, iconoclastic, and I should add abrasive figures you could ever imagine. You think he's abrasive? He's a different I had a guy. fight with him one time. Yes. It's not much to tell. We had a fight one day about disagreed over a person, a, a minor state legislator, and whether he was making a contribution up in Albany. Right. And the president of New Paltz was honoring him. Right. I fault myself for this, by the way. And everybody was sitting around this long table, and you know he raised it. I don't know why he raised it before. I think he, he raised it, and I responded by saying, "No." I, as I remember the story, he was a sort of minor leaguer right. who didn't count up there. And, well, our voices, instead of getting louder, got softer. <laughs> they disagreed. And, uh, and it, it, was really, it was really something. But, I mean, but he, the point to me is Hirsch is an abrasive character. Oh, he is. Um, he has fought with every boss he's ever had. He's left in every, virtually every job. His first job, to bring it back to the abrasive niche, his first job, he works for the City News Bureau in Chicago in 1959. The City News Bureau was this legendary place where so many great journalists Is that where he grew up in Chicago, right? He grew up in Chicago, yeah. And so his first job was with the City News Bureau, and they basically would have all these kids who they would hire, and then they'd send the kids out all through the city of Chicago. Every time there was a murder, every time there was a fire, there'd be a kid on the scene from the City News Bureau, and then they would file all of these things to all of the newspapers. So the newspapers knew if something happened at 3 in the morning, they didn't have to cover it because the City News Bureau would be there. They could follow up. And this is Sy's first job. And he actually was instinctually very good going out, you know, learning, learning about cops and learning about, you know, city officials and not taking any guff and learning you can't take guff. So it's a great, you know, turning point for him. But he also burned his bridges. There was an editor there who one of their jobs and assignments was every time there'd be a sporting event in Chicago in one of the high schools, they would have to get the, get the result and clip up like hundreds and hundreds of pages of these, these events. And right before Sy is about to leave and go to the Army, and he wants to come back to the City News Bureau after the Army, he plays a joke on one of the editors. He clips hundreds and hundreds of pages of these you know, sporting events, sticks it in the guy's mailbox, screws him, and when he tries to come back, they don't want him. They don't forget. That, they, they didn't forget. He leaves the Associated Press in 1967. Frankly, this was a, an honorable thing for him to do, but in 1967, from 64 to 67, he goes to work for the Associated Press. He's in Chicago for two years, and then comes to Washington, goes to work at the Pentagon, breaking all sorts of stories about the war in 1967 or so, and then he finds out, this is one of his great hidden scoops, actually, he finds out that the American government was stockpiling chemical and biological weapons and had also made a change in policy. Instead of saying, if we ever are attacked with chemical and biological weapons, we will respond, they had made a change in policy that we're going to begin to use it as an offensive weapon, which was a major change in American policy. And we had begun in Vietnam to use a variety of chemical weapons. So he has uh, this incredible story. He's on the first investigative reporting team that the Associated Press starts up. And he gets this story, he writes a multi-part series of of articles, and the AP cuts the heck out of the story, turns it into one 1,500-word story, really neuters it, makes it a balanced story, and it wasn't a balanced story, it was an investigation, and it was a major investigation, and he quits, and he simply says, that's it. He has a great job. He's in the White House. He's covering Lyndon Johnson. You know, this poor kid from Chicago suddenly covering the Pentagon, and he quits. He quits on principle. That's when he eventually goes to work for McCarthy because he's out of a job. He writes a book in 1968, Chemical and Biological Weapons. One of the first acts of the Nixon administration was to ban the stockpiling and production of biological weapons. 
And that was clearly because of Cy Hirsch's work. He had written articles in the New York Times and Ramparts and a number of magazines. He had written the book. You look at scholars who have studied that or even scientists who study that, and they say, this is a seminal work. You've got to look first to Seymour Hirsch's work. So it's a major kind of scoop for him. But my point is he quits the AP. He quits the New York Times. He apparently had, has had fights like crazy with David Remnick of The New Yorker. He's an abrasive, difficult guy. And he was abrasive and difficult with you a little bit, you seem to indicate, when you were interviewing him for this thing. We, we got along, but he didn't, you know, is this an authorized biography? Absolutely not. He did not authorize it. He didn't want this book to be written. Is that right? He absolutely did not did want this book to Did he tell you that? In, in not so many words. My first conversation with Cy was, I call him up, I guess it's the year 2000. Bush is still president, so probably 2006. I write him a registered letter to tell him I'm going to do the book because I knew that the second I started to call people, they'd go right back to sure. Cy Hirsch. And, you know, I said, I didn't want them to hear it from Cy. I wanted Cy to hear it from me. And I also held out the option and hoped that he would sit down and talk. So I write him a registered letter, and then I call him up. And the first thing he says, yeah, yeah, yeah. And we had met him. You know, I had met him many years before at New Paltz, and we had talked a couple times, so he knew who I was. He says, yeah, yeah, yeah. He says, I, I, know, I know who you are. He says, look. Uh, first thing is that letter came. It was 102 degrees. I wasn't in my office. I had to walk to the post office. And uh, I said, okay, great, great way to start. So he was mad at you. Yeah, he was mad at me because I had to walk on yeah. a bum knee from playing tennis. He had to walk to the post office in 100-degree weather. Then he says, look, I'm not dead. And I quickly said, I, we all know that, side. The whole world knows you're not dead. And then he said, and this is so typically Cy Hirsch, he says, I can't sit down and talk about myself. I'm not going to talk about myself until these son of a are out of the White House. I have to work. He says, I have to work. This is what's most important to me is that I do my work. He says, I don't have time. He says, I've been approached by at least a dozen documentary filmmakers over the years. I've always turned them down. I'm not the story. I don't want to talk about myself. And I said, okay, well, I'll just check in with you from time to time. And the relationship we developed was we, we developed a phone relationship. We developed an email relationship. He would answer my emails really quickly. He would take my phone calls. But then, you know, size very dismissive. You get 10 minutes, and you know you got to get your questions in, get them in quick, because after 10 minutes, okay, you got enough. Goodbye. So, but was he competitive with you in that, in a way, you were stealing his thunder in that he's saying, I'm not ready to write the book about myself yet. Uh, he told me he'll never write the book about himself. Uh -huh. He said, I'll never write a memoir. And I, I actually believe that. I think he'll never write a memoir because he's too busy doing work about other things. And I really believe him. In so who would you compare him to? I.F. Stone? I mean, what? I.F. Stone was one of his heroes. Yeah. Um, in fact, there's a, a funny, interesting uh, Associated Press story. When he's at the Associated Press, he didn't know I.F. Stone, although everybody was reading I.F. Stone's Weekly, the legendary you know, American, American uh, independent journalist. I knew him, and I got it in the house, which got, is got, probably why I should get my FBI file. Uh, I'm sure there's a, I'm sure there's a shot talk dossier. <laughs> so I.F. Stone comes to the Associated Press, and basically, since he's an independent journalist, doesn't have access to, to clippings, to files, to background information. And he comes to the AP, and nobody at the AP would help him or talk to him. And Cy, you know, loved this guy. He was legendary. Yeah. And he said, sure, come on in. I'll help you. And he basically turned him on to all the clippings and background stories to help out Cy Hirsch. And everybody else was really angry. But, you know, I.F. Stone was one of his early... So, uh, right. So it makes sense. I don't think there's yeah. anyone in American journalism who's comparable to Seymour Hirsch. The only person who mm. people compare him to, and there's a, actually a strong rivalry, rivalry is Bob Woodward. Uh -huh. Woodward and Hirsch have long kind of battled for who's the greatest investigative reporter in American history and American journalism. Interesting. Um, and there are Woodward fans and there are Hirsch fans. You know, I'm I'm a Hirsch fan in the sense that Woodward is a great journalist, has been a great investigative journalist, has written some terrific books, but his books are more insider looks from people at the top. 
Sure. And as Hirsch says, I'm, I don't care about people at the top. He says, I'm writing about what really took place, and the people at the top are not going to tell me what really took place. So in some ways, they just provide different views inside American life and American government. Mm-hmm. Hirsch's sources are all in the middle. Woodward's sources increasingly have been at the top. Woodward was terrific, by the way, in, in this book. He opened up his house to me. He spent a long time sitting down. He loved Cy Hirsch's work, and he said some interesting things about Hirsch. He said, first off, we need more Cy Hirsch's. One of the things Cy does is he's like the Marines. He's the first guy on the beach, and he takes all the shots, and then everybody follows what Cy Hirsch does. So he said, I, I love Cy Hirsch's work. When I asked Cy about Woodward, he says, I'm a big friend. We're, we go way back with each other. I just disagree, you know, how he tells the story. He tells it from the top, and I don't think you get the truth if you tell it from the top. And he says, I've told this to Bob. He also has said after the movie All the President's Men came out and Woodward is making gobs and gobs of money and Cy is really not, he said, I'd love to have Robert Redford play me in a movie. He really blustered about that. So there's been this long-time rivalry. And the book recounts some of the... What happens, I should get back to, you know, the New York Times years. Finally, the New York Times convinces... Cy Hirsch to get on the Woodward uh, the Watergate story. I shouldn't say they convince him. Abe Rosenthal makes a phone call and says, you are now on the story. And he was the editor. Then. He was the editor of the New York Times. And the Washington Bureau editor was Clifton Daniel. Clifton Daniel's wife was a husband of Margaret Truman. Margaret Truman, uh, Harry Truman's daughter, uh, and a very influential person, you know, connected in and around Washington. And, and Daniel comes to uh, Cy Hirsch brings him a couple new shirts and a couple sweaters because Cy was not exactly, look, didn't look like a, the kind of figure who should be in the Washington Bureau, a very kind of scruffy dresser. Brings him some shirts, brings him some sweaters, and says, Cy, from here on in, you're on Watergate. And he blusters, and then he dives in. And by most accounts, not only does he dive in, he, he basically begins to beat Woodward and Bernstein. I had some memos from the Woodward and Bernstein files uh, in, in, uh, in, uh, in, in Texas where they have all of the files from Watergate now archived. And in a couple of the files, they're saying, God, the Times is catching up. This guy Hirsch, this guy Hirsch is beating our pants off. He's ahead of us. They were scared of Seymour Hirsch. Seymour Hirsch suddenly had the story. But he didn't have deep throat. Didn't have deep throat. <laughs> didn't even know. Who, did He knew of, of him. Uh, I knew of felt, but he didn't really know who he was, never had talked to him. He had different levels of sources. The two people I talked to said that, you know, Cy's a chameleon. He, he, plays, you know, he plays the card when he has to. But a number of the Justice Department prosecutors were Jewish, and they apparently felt more comfortable talking to Cy than they felt talking to the waspy Bob Woodward. And Cy had a number of sources in the Justice Department who were constantly, this was the age of leaks in the 1970s. Everybody's leaking like crazy on the Watergate story. And so if you can get people to leak to you, that's how your story's going to be made. And he had a number of people, insiders, who were giving him things that allowed him not only to catch up, but to begin to beat Woodward and Bernstein on the story. And there's one very, two, two very funny anecdotes. One is they had this little code system. They were always, you know, going after the same sources. And if they got to a source first, they'd leave a little note knowing that the other would be there. And one day, Cy goes to a source, and he gets there, and there's the little tape note from Woodward. Ah, I've been here first. On the other hand, they had developed a relationship. Woodward uh, and Cy would go out to uh, play tennis every Tuesday night. Then they'd go to a pizza place, and they kind of had a relationship. One night, it was Woodward, Bernstein, and uh, Hirsch sitting around having drinks. Their book agent, uh, Cy's book agent, David Ops, is there. And Ops, David Ops told me this story. They're sitting around. They've just had a nice dinner. They've had a couple drinks. Woodward goes to make a phone call to the night desk at the Washington Post, and he comes back ashen. 
because Hirsch had a story on page one the next day in the New York Times that had really beaten them, something they knew nothing about, and he didn't say anything. All he said was, Carl, let's get out of here. we got to get back to the office. They're calling us. They're really angry. And it turned out he had a big page one story, and this was the rivalry. It was, it's, a, it's a great rivalry. It's one of the great rivalries. But get back to the original question, I think you know Hirsch is incomparable. No one has written as many scoop stories as he has. Uh, he wrote hundreds of stories for the New York Times. He's written... Uh, we get the best view of the Mideast War from his New Yorker pieces over a six-year period. I wanted to go yeah. to the New Yorker, but yeah. I also want to remind everybody who are listening with their mouths open to this interview, we're talking to Professor Robert Moraldi, award-winning journalist and author of the new book, Scoop Artist, The World According to Seymour Hirsch, From My Lie to Abu Ghraib, Potomac Books, University of Nebraska Press. Rob, so let's talk about the New Yorker, but before we do... I wanted to ask you about character. I mean, you've sort of given us this view of Cy Hirsch as an abrasive SOB type guy who would rather put you in your place than particularly be nice to you. Some of it's personality and some uh, of it's principle. And where does that come from? Is it where, did it come from his parents? I mean, who do, we all develop character by the age of four, says Freud. So, right. so where does this come from? You know, I think in the book, uh, I, I, Hirsch is a living figure. But one of my one of the criticisms I would make, and I was my inability to get at this, um, so I cut me off really from his family. He has a twin brother, Alan, mm-hmm. who lives in. You know about twin brothers, Alan? We do. And uh, in preparation for this, we actually, my wife and I, looked up how Alan is doing yeah. in life. He's done very respectable. Done very well. He's a he's a well known scientist. He set yeah. up his own company in California. I flew out to California to speak to the, the agent who marketed the Milan Massacre. David Ops lives in Los Angeles, and I flew out. I was going to interview Ops, and I was going to interview Sai's brother, Alan. The interview was all set up on a Tuesday morning. I was going to drive up to his house. He was excited. He had never really sat down and talked to anybody about Sai, and Sai intervened and wanted to know what the questions would be. My family is irrelevant. He said, Alan knows nothing about my work. But, but he does know what it's like to be your twin brother. Exactly. If anyone was going to tell you what Sai Hirsch was like, it would be his twin brother. And I didn't have access to his brother. We tried. We negotiated questions back and forth. And finally, I just gave up. There were too many conditions, which is a bit unlike Sai. You know, to does that make you angry when that happens? Well, you know, I tried my best on I tried my longest. And I walked this line with Cy to not alienate him at any sure. point or yes. to yell at him because I always hoped, you know, he would continue to talk to me. So when um, he yells at you, did he expect you to yell back at him? He only yelled at me once. And that was because my agent apparently posted something online that indicated that Hirsch is talking to and cooperating with the author, mm-hmm. which was half true but not really true. He would answer my emails. He would answer my phone calls. We had one long sit-down interview in Washington, so he was cooperating in that sense. But it wasn't an authorized biography. He didn't authorize it. I didn't want an authorized biography. So who cares? Who cares? That it was an authorized biography or not. I mean, to me, you know, you get the potential for Stockholm Syndrome when you you see these authorized biographies because— You know, nobody wants to lose the authorization. Well, I guess who cares in some ways was were, were publishers because if uh. the author is talking for the first time. But um, you, but you, but you, you were right about that. He was talking to you. He was, except we just didn't kind of publicly say it. But now someone publicly said it, and Cy called me up the first time, the only time he ever called me at my house, and said, "Look, I read this, and it's just not true. I'm not cooperating." I said, "Whoa, Cy, I didn't say you were cooperating. I have to see what that is." 
And I said, I'll correct that. But, you know, I didn't want to break. I didn't want to. Uh, uh, yeah. Sure. Yeah, I wanted to continue to have a relationship. With well, if he's so writing you emails, how the hell is he not cooperating with you? The emails were always about his work and so? never about his persona. And he w- wasn't cooperating in the sense. I had another another example of the family. Uh, to get back to your original question, what you know, where did this person come from? He has two sisters, twin sisters, older twin sisters. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, so they have two sets of twins in the house. One of the sisters lives in northern New Jersey. One lives in Chicago. I had contacted, you know, it's a long story, but through a former student of mine, my former student's sister was married to somebody in the family, and so I was able to connect to the sister. And she was thrilled. Uh, We were all set. I was going to drive to New Jersey. I was going to talk to her. And again, Sai said to me, sorry, not going to happen. I'm not going to allow you to talk. Well, but doesn't that tick you off when you, you, you re- recognize that his career was built on interviews and getting interviews yes. and, and not having anybody quash the yeah. interview? What he said about the sister was that, again, she knows nothing about my work. And I did say to him, this was a book about you know your work. But I also said, Sai, it's also a book about you as a person. I learned as much as I could about his family. His father owned a dry cleaning business in, in Chicago. His mother was a house cleaner, relatively poor. But the father did pretty well in South Side of Chicago. Interesting story, and this, I think, really had an impact on Sai. The father was in the South Side of Chicago as the neighborhood began to change from a largely you know, working-class white neighborhood to a largely African-American neighborhood. And most of the businesses, many of the businesses fled the South Side and went elsewhere. Sai's father stayed. He was one of the few businessmen to stay. And the neighborhood really appreciated that. Sai tells a funny story. As a young kid, he and his brother both worked in the dry cleaning business, and they would, at the end of the day, take the, the, the money and walk to the bank with it. And one day, he's walking to the bank, and there's a big, burly African-American guy following him. And he says, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. And as it turned out, the neighborhood kids respected Sai's father, and he was basically watching over Sai to make sure he got to the bank without anybody bothering him. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Sai's early work in Chicago was a lot about race. Um, he wrote a lot of stories. He did one of the first big interviews when Martin Luther King came to Chicago trying to promote Johnson civil rights legislation. When he went to Washington, D.C., he would cover a lot of events that clearly were his, his initiative, his enterprise. So he took a very early interest in, in race and race issues. That could have been his whole career, but he eventually you know, ends up really doing much about the military and covert, covert intelligence. So I couldn't get as much information about his family. I knew his wife. His wife is a well-known uh, doctor in Manhattan, uh, in uh, Washington, D.C. I would have loved to sit down. I mean, some of the things she could have told me about life with this workaholic, what was it like? You know, Sai tells a funny story. I would have loved to talk to his wife about this. Not so funny, actually. But after he writes the My Lai Massacre story, first of it causes an, an international furor. It's on head, in headlines all, all across the world. Um, it's, you know, the biggest scandal of, of the Vietnam War. And, of course, many people in the military and soldiers don't like the story. And they're either saying, even if it's true, you shouldn't write about it. A lot of people saying it can't be true. American boys would never do this. A lot of people simply saying, how do you tell in that war who's on our side and who's not? And he was viciously, viciously attacked for writing this story. And he said he would regularly get calls at 3 in the morning. His, his phone number still is publicly listed. His address is publicly listed. You can pick up the phone and call Cy Hirsch at any point in time, and he'll take the call. But he was getting calls at 3 in the morning. And as he puts it, uh, there were calls from soldiers who were basically threatening to do things to his private parts. I would love to talk to his wife. What's it like living with this guy for 30 or 40 years who has you know, really been threatened many, many times? He said to me his reason for really not wanting to involve his family in this biography or in his work is he feels that there are threats to their lives. Do you believe that? That's why he did it as opposed to this is off limits because he doesn't want people to know about him. 
three reasons. One is I think he just didn't want to have that part of his life revealed. I think that's clearly part of it. I think he truly does think that he's not the story or he shouldn't be, be, be the story. I never got a sense at all that there was anything that really what they were, he was hiding. He's actually kind of prudish. So I never had a sense that there was womanizing or any of those kinds of things at all with Cy Hirsch. In fact, there's a funny story on, on that. He took a bit of a diversion at some point in the 1980s because his, his old friend David Opst, who helped him market the Milai story, needed some cash and asked Cy if he'd come to Hollywood and help him write scripts for Oliver Stone, the famous uh, film director. Sure. So he goes to Hollywood, and he's working with Oliver Stone. That didn't go well, by the way. I'm they, so surprised. Yeah, they butted heads, and uh, <laughs> Hirsch exposed the story that Manuel Noriega was running guns and drugs and also on the payroll of the American government for many years. Well, that's a huge story. It was a huge story, and he broke that story in 1986. After he had left the Times, he came back just to write a couple stories, including including that one. So that was a big story. But Oliver Stone wanted him to write a screenplay for a movie on a Noriega-like character, except he wanted fiction, and Cy didn't want to write fiction, so I wanted really to do something more in the documentary. It went badly. But while they're having this the, the relationship, Stone comes to Washington, D.C., and Stone, and this anecdote is in the book, Stone comes to Washington, D.C. Cy invites him to come to his house for dinner one night. And he shows up at the house, and as they're having dinner, knock on the door comes, and it's Oliver Stone's mistress who wants to join him for dinner. And Cy was indignant. Cy played it down, but David Ops said Cy was really angry. So I never got a sense that this is a guy who was, you know, carousing or doing things that were kind of, you might want to expose. That would have been good for my book to have those kinds of things. Mm. This is a, really is a book about his work. So I guess I take him to some degree on his word that the story is not about him and his family is, is private. Yeah, well, except that, I'm sorry for pursuing yep. this, Go ahead. except that we all know, you've said it, I certainly experienced it on one occasion, he can be nasty. And yep. if you're nasty in life, it probably comes along with the package over the years. Yep. And wouldn't it be wonderful to know what made him so nasty? It would have been pop psychology on my part to try to figure that out, but I certainly would have had a better chance had I been able to talk to his brother and his sisters to know what the, the growing up years were really like. And mm -hmm. I really don't know what the growing up years were like, except that he went to a public school, he graduates from a high school, he goes for two years to a community college. After two years at a community college, he goes to the University of Chicago where he majors in history, does very well, but he's not a particularly outstanding student. As he puts it, he's much more interested in, as uh, literally his words, going out, drinking martinis, and throwing up, um, and you know, staring at my navel and trying to figure out what to do with the rest of my life. So it wasn't like this was a guy who was intent on going somewhere. He goes to law school for one year, does terribly, hates it, drops out. I shouldn't say drops out, he fails out. Tries business for a little while, goes to business school, says it was the worst experience and the most boring thing he ever did in his life. And then he stumbles into this job with the City News Bureau. So, you know, that's in essence what I know about his growing up. The early, early years, what it was like in his family. I do know that his mother was dry, dry cleaning houses and very, very busy. I know, do know that his father put in huge, long hours. I do know that the house used to subscribe to the forward, which, of course, was a very progressive you know, newspaper that came into the house all the time. So probably progressive politics were part of what took place. Both his parents were immigrants, and it was very common for immigrant families to kind of turn towards progressive and or left solutions. So probably all of that influenced his politics. But what created this driven, talented, abrasive character? 
maybe it remains to be seen for his next biographer. He quit the Times, why? He left the Times in 1979. He was there from 72 to 79. Great seven-year run where he you know, writes all sorts of incredible stories. If I could just talk about one story that I, I, we, we've been going in and out of his work, but in 1975, he writes what is clearly the biggest story of the year, although when he wrote it, everyone said it couldn't be true and denied it, but it's very relevant today. In 1975, he writes a story, page one of the New York Times, right before Christmas it comes out, indicating that the American Central Intelligence Agency was spying on American citizens, opening their mail, tapping their phones, in direct violation of their charter, which basically said they could only do spying abroad. If we were going to be spied on, it would have to be by the FBI. Mm -hmm. This was clearly illegal, clearly a violation. He put a number on the number of dossiers that they had collected. The CIA said, it's not true, it's not true, it's, it's hyperbole, the story is greatly exaggerated. Then we find out six months later that the story was exactly true. And in fact, Sy had been very cautious and conservative and grossly underestimated the number of people who were actually being spied on. But this is kind of a great scoop by him that gets confirmed. By well, do they ever try to punish him for all of this stuff? I mean, I know I.F. Stone, as I remember it, had several right. IRS audits. I wonder if there was any uh, retribution. Two things. One is I would have loved to have seen his FBI, NSA, CIA file, but mm -hmm. only Cy can see that. Mm -hmm. I can't get it until he's dead. Um, and I asked him if he'd be interested in pursuing it and said, no interest, absolutely no interest at all. And the only memo or indicator I have that the government was out to get him was his old friend Dick Cheney, who he's now writing a book about, by the way. In 1975... When you say friend, were you being sarcastic? I'm uh, being sarcastic, yeah. friend in quotes, yeah. yeah. He's about to write a big book on... Cheney in the Bush White House and Obama and their covert intelligence policies, and it'll probably be out shortly. It's going to it's going to make headlines. I'm sure it's going to be a scandalous book. He says it's worse than we thought. He was about to write the book or close to finishing the book, and then he basically concluded that many of the policies of the Bush years that were problematic had continued right into the Obama years, and so he, he expanded the book. So it, it'll be out soon. But anyway, 1975. What does he think about Obama? Literally, in a, in a recent interview, he said, I don't know what's going on there, but I think something's wrong with the guy. His size has butted heads with every president going back to Lyndon Johnson. He butted heads with Johnson. He butted heads with Nixon. He butted heads with the Reagan administration. Reagan administration, when he wrote a book about the downing of a Korean airliner, went nuts and the Secretary of State basically threatened to throw him in jail. George Bush called him a, an abject liar. And now the Obama people immediately, when he started writing about them, called the New Yorker and David Remnick and said, call your guy off. What's this guy doing? So this is Cy Hirsch. He butts heads with everybody, including American presidents. That's not a bad thing. But there's no real proof of retribution. We do know that Nixon was not above sending out his auditors or he had issues. The only two things I know about where they're kind of retribution, so to speak, well, three things really, but two seem to be governmental. Kissinger apparently put a guy on Hearst to follow him. And there's an indication that he was followed for a period of time just to see who he was talking to, what he was up to. That was less retribution than more like the plumber's leaks trying sure. to find out who, who he's talking to. And then Cheney, after Hirsch, this was like the third or fourth major story he had written when Ford took over as president, Cheney's top-level official in the Ford administration. Cheney writes a handwritten memo. You can Google it, and it's out there. It's, it's a really interesting memo. And it says, this guy, Cy Hirsch, is basically writing story after story. Some of them we think are not only problematic for us, but problematic in terms of the law. And here's our options. First option, break into his apartment and find out what he's got. That was option number one. Here we go again. <laughs> Secondly, arrest him. 
and Abe Rosenthal, editor of the New York Times, and charged them with violation of. So yeah, the, the fourth option was basically secretly talk to Sulzberger, the publisher of the paper, and see if you can call them off. And that's what they did. I had a number of uh, CAA transcripts showing that Sulzberger and Colby, the director of the CAA, would regularly talk on a Sunday morning. He'd call them up and say, hey, how you doing? Sulzberger, this ex-Marine, not wanting to be accused of being unpatriotic. And in the middle of sides doing major investigations, Sulzberger is basically saying, okay, I understand. Now, this is Papa Sulzberger. Papa Sulzberger, yes. And he basically was saying, okay, we'll, we'll put a lid on it. We'll make sure this story doesn't go anywhere. I only had one indication that that happened. Size stories always got published. But so he may have said one thing but done another, Sulzberger? The only story that they called Sy off on for a long time was Hirsch learned, and this is in 1975, about 1975, Hirsch learned that the uh, this famous Glomar Explorer story, which hit you know page ones all over America, the Russians had a submarine that sank in the Pacific Ocean, deep, deep, deep in the bottom of the ocean, and they couldn't find it. Our intelligence was able to actually locate and find where the submarine was. The Russians literally couldn't find the submarine. We had better technology. And we had devised this scheme with the CIA, and we contracted with Howard Hughes Corporation. We were going to send this big trawler, the Glomar Explorer, specially outfitted, and we were going to lift this submarine off the bottom of the ocean, lift it up, and bring it back, and it would be this intelligence coup. We'd get their missiles. We'd get their codes. Also, a number of sailors had died on the ship, so the, the CIA was incredibly fearful that if the Russians knew, and they were watching our movements all the time, we'd go to war. There would be a war over this if they knew that we were lifting their submarine, and this submarine had dead soldiers, dead Russian Navy men on it. Cy learns about this. He gets the scoop on this, and he's trying to put it together, and Colby calls him and calls everybody in Remind town. everybody who Colby was. Colby was the director, I'm sorry, Colby was the director of the Central Intelligence Agency. Colby calls him, he calls Sulzberg, he calls Rosenthal, he calls everybody and says, if you write this story and they know, there's going to be a war. So I sits on the story for nearly a year, and clearly... No, no, bring us up to date. What happened? Did they grab the submarine and bring it home? They finally get out there. They grab the submarine. They get it halfway up. It splits in half. Half of it falls back down, and half of it stays up, and they're able to bring back only part of it, but it wasn't the part that had the missiles on it and the codes, and it was a it was like a $300 million boondoggle. So why didn't they disaster. go back and get the other half? Well, they were ta- that's when they were, they were talking about going back. And from Sai's point of view and from the press's point of view, we, we're going to spend $600 million to lift a submarine off the floor of the ocean. This is a boondoggle. This is ridiculous. At the very least, maybe there ought to be a discussion, but there can't be a discussion because if there's a discussion, the Russians will be involved. And after a year of sitting on the story, he finally writes the story. But in that year, Colby, Sulzberger, The Times all basically put pressure on Cy to not run this story. He was very angry because Jack Anderson, syndicated columnist, eventually goes on the air on radio to break the story. Cy had already written the story. It was ready to go. And The Times had it that night. You know, Anderson was on the air at 9 p.m., Hirsch story comes out at midnight because he was ready to go. And Anderson had called him and said, I got the story. Is it good? And Cy said, it's as good as it gets. It's it's real. Don't worry. You got the story. He breaks the story first and then Cy. But Cy, of course, always gets the credit for breaking that story. My point, though, is this was a story that Sulzberger kind of really put the kiboshes on for a long time. Well, wait, 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 wait a second. Professor Dr. Rob Moraldi, I need to ask you a question. Yes. You are a press critic, you teach journalism, you've taught it all your life. What do you make of this Times refusal? I mean, the premise is we're going to go to war if this story comes out. Was that true? No, I think that was preposterous. This was clearly a Cold War kind of venture. There's also the question of, I mean, they literally spent probably $300 million 
for this boondoggle. You know, from the press's point of view, it's a scandalous moment for the press to basically all sit on a story that should have been written. This is always an issue, right? Bay of Pigs an issue. Yep. Uh, you know. This is really in the line of the Bay of Pigs and a number of other times. I think, you know, these kinds of things continue to happen today. I consider Hirsch kind of the Snowden of his day. When he writes the CIA story about the CIA, uh, you know, that's a wonderfully relevant story, the CIA in 1975. And when Cy writes that story, he's incredibly attacked the same way that Snowden was attacked. And he's hung out to dry for six months story was This is the CIA expose story that the CIA was doing domestic spying right, when, when they should have been. And that story just had incredible repercussions. He was really hung out to dry. He and Abe Rosenthal hung out to dry for six months, you know, in the same way that Snowden right now is being hung out to dry for leaking that material. Well, Snowden is going to potentially face jail. Did Cy face jail? He did not face jail for that story, although they always looked into it. Well, it was the New York Times. Yeah. They were looking more into who his sources would be and who might have leaked the material. There was actually some suspicion that Colby was his source. And in fact, there was some suspicion that Colby gave him the CIA spying story in exchange for him saying, I will sit on the Glomar submarine story. I was never able to document that. There were some rumors of that, but he clearly had a very close relationship with Colby. Colby eventually gets fired by the Ford administration. Kissinger was furious at him for talking to the press too much, and I think part of that was he talked to Hirsch a lot and had a good relationship with Cy Hirsch. Yeah, they were probably listening to the phone calls. They probably were listening to the phone calls. <laughs> hey, yeah. Rob Moraldi, let, let me go to The New Yorker now. This is yeah. a very important point here. Uh, the New Yorker is unlike anything else, I think, that exists. Yeah. And he goes and he finds a little bit of a home there. Yeah. This is an interesting transition for him because in 1998 he writes a book on John Kennedy called The Dark Side of Camelot. And this is, you know, you talk about him not wanting to invade privacy. And this is really the only time in his life he has kind of, some people say he became the Kitty Kelly of American journalism by writing this kind of kiss and tell, tell all book. He tried to tie John Kennedy's sex life to public policy. And throughout this book, which, you know, caused a huge controversy, it also got him an incredible advance from publishers, made him for the first time a lot of money. For example, how do you tie public policy to his sexual proclivities? He basically said that, that, you know, Kennedy was an incredible womanizer, and the book documents it beyond anything we've even thought about or imagined. Sure. Uh, pool parties and just come into a town, and they would immediately escort women in, into his bedroom. Hirsch got, for the first time, four Secret Service agents to actually talk about all of this. And they said, after holding this in, covering this up for, you know, 30 years, we've had enough. He jeopardized the presidency. He jeopardized the presidential security. And they basically told Hirsch about all of this. Whether it was simply tabloid stuff to sell a book or whether there really was a connection between him having to kind of change public policy. And the book, you know, you could look at the book and there's half the chapters are on sex and half the, the, the chapters are on public policy. So it's kind of a specious connection in some ways. But nonetheless, he tries to do this. It is the worst, lowest moment of Cy Hirsch's uh, career. Because? He is criticized. Like, uh, the, 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 the attacks on him are unbelievable. Because Kennedy was such a popular president. It, partly he takes on a liberal icon. Sure. You know, previous to this, he's always taken on Nixon and Kissinger and the conservatives, and the conservatives always hated Cy Hirsch. And now suddenly there was a funny interview where William Buckley, the famous conservative pundit, has a TV show, and he has on Schlesinger and uh, and Sorensen, both Kennedy uh, acolytes. Yeah. And, he, and most people think Sorensen wrote Profiles and Courage. Profiles and Courage. And Buckley at some point chuckles and says, kind of, this is interesting that I'm actually 
finding myself liking this book by Seymour Hirsch. That suddenly the conservatives yeah. were happy that he took on took on on the on this the the, the, lib, the liberal icon. My my point is, this was a low point in Hirsch's career. Many people said he's done, he's over. The man who we all consider to be the greatest American investigative reporting has reached a low point. He's done. He's over. And so he has to kind of figure out where do we go? Where does he go next? He writes a short book on Gulf War syndrome. He really can't find anything in, in, that happened in, in the first Gulf War to prove that soldiers are coming back because of something we did. Small book, not very important. And then he takes on an investigation. This is the New Yorker for the New Yorker magazine. He is told that General Barry McCaffrey, who many people thought was going to be the next president, this chisel-jawed, handsome, articulate West Point graduate. As the Gulf War, they had signed a peace treaty on the, on the first Gulf War, and the Iraqi troops are coming back, going back home to the Baghdad capital, and basically they were allowed to go and not be touched. According to sources Hirsch developed, McCaffrey made an about-face, and as a long line of uh, Iraqi troops are coming back, they let loose and fire. McCaffrey's people. McCaffrey's people. They level these returning soldiers. They kill a bunch of people. And it's essentially a massacre of sorts. McCaffrey won't talk to the Times. He gives a 30-page rebuttal, you know, to written questions. It's the longest piece that the New Yorker had ever run, longest nonfiction piece the New Yorker ever ran, and it's Hirsch's attack on Barry McCaffrey. It basically eliminates McCaffrey as a presidential candidate. There were investigations, nothing was ever proven, but basically it was Hirsch's back. He develops a good relationship with David Remnick, the editor of The New Yorker, and he begins to kind of carve out a new niche. After 9-1-1, uh, the attacks, the morning, literally the morning of the 9-1-1 attacks, Cy Hirsch is backing out of his driveway, out of his house in Washington. His phone rings, it's David Remnick, and he says, Cy, we know what you're going to be doing for the next year. You're going to be writing about intelligence. You're going to be writing about the Mideast. You're going to be writing about nothing but this. And he turns the New Yorker into, instead of this kind of lumbering, slow-moving, mm. thoughtful, ponderous, elitist magazine, he turns it into a breaking kind of news magazine because he starts to write week after week after week the best look at what's taking place, the problems in intelligence community. Some people actually say Sai has now become a conservative because he's basically arguing, we're just not able. Our CIA, no one knew the CIA like Cy Hirsch. He says, our CIA is just not able to deal with this. We don't have people on the ground. We don't have people who understand the language. We're way behind. Our technology is terrible. We've got to, after Cy Hirsch's 1975 CIA story, we put into place a law that we could not assassinate um, the leaders of foreign governments, which we had been doing regularly. It makes sense. Well, that we we're, sure, we're sure we're still not doing that. And, and, and what happens, of course, now <laughs> is suddenly he's starting to say, hmm, maybe that law that I got put into place is not such a great idea that we're in a new era here. And people are saying, geez, I heard sounds like mm-hmm. kind, of, kind of like a conservative. But for the next four years, he writes the best stories on what's taking place. A lot of fumbles by the Bush administration, a lot of fumbles by the CIA. And so... He gets a new home. You know, suddenly now, here's the guy who works for the most elite publication in the country, the New York Times, and now he works for the most elite intelligentsia publication, the New Yorker, for, you know, four or five, six years. And he hasn't written there for the last maybe two or three years. And the question I get all the time from Hirsch's legion of fans, and he has, you know, incredible fan club out there, people say, where's Cy Hirsch? Why don't I see him in the New Yorker? Has he retired? And the answer is he's working on this book on uh, on Dick Cheney and the Obama administration on covert intelligence. And we've had some conversations and some correspondence on that. And as I said, he says it's worse, you know, worse than I, than I thought. 
and I'll finish this book soon and someday, and when it comes out, it'll make headlines, and I think that'll be probably pretty soon. Well, I can't wait, but in the meantime, he doesn't get along well with, he doesn't play well with others, and are we quite sure he played well with The New Yorker? It's an interesting good question, and uh, and his, the only thing he has written in the last two or three years was a piece that came out about, oh, about a month ago, and it appeared in the London Review of Books of All Places, mm. and it's a long very typical Cy Hirsch with lots of anonymous sources. One of the controversial things about Cy is he always has, you know, very few named sources, and he's always been accused of, you know, why, why don't, why don't we know who he's talking to? But it's this long article where he essentially argues, and I'm sure this is will be the basis of a chapter in his in his upcoming book. He argues that, you know, you know, the in Syria we had the saran uh, sarin gas attack where a number of I think 2,500 people were killed, and we essentially, you know, accuse. Syria of doing this. He claims that the Obama administration had access to intelligence that indicated that this was not the Syrian government, but it was dissident and other rebels, or at the very least, they should have explored that, but it was not politically expedient for them to do that. It was much more convenient for them to simply stick to the story that it was the Syrian government, and they cherry-picked, as he put it, the, the intelligence. This, of course, caused a huge flap. Um, it was denied by the um, uh, by the Obama administration, and the New Yorker refused to run the piece. And the Washington Post had it, and they refused to run the piece. And he ends up publishing it in the London Review of Books. I do not know at this point. And there's speculation whether he and Remnick now have butted heads, and his days at the New Yorker are over. Does he have a? He has a, the kind of memory that never forgets. Remnick or Hirsch? Uh, Hirsch. Uh, Hearst doesn't forget. He remembers everything. Although, that's uh, an interesting question. Maybe I'm wrong on that. I, I called him a number of times to talk to him about things that had taken place in his career, you know, 75, 76. And this is stuff 30, 40 years ago. The guy's written hundreds of stories, dozens yeah. of uh, magazine articles. And at times he would say, you know, you know more about that than I do. I'm not remembering that. Uh, you know, that, that, wasn't, that wasn't a surprise. So I, I, what he remembers or how much he remembers, I don't know. I know he found it really interesting when I was coming up with stuff. For example, he works for the New York Times for seven years, five years in Washington, then he comes to New York City. His wife goes to, uh, she was a social worker. She stops being a social worker and goes to medical school in Manhattan. So he has to move the whole family from Washington to New York, and he, and he starts to work in New York. And he starts to do different kinds of things, long investigative pieces while he's in New York. One of the pieces he writes is about, he wants to write a story about archetype American corporation and how corporations work corruptly. And he, he takes on Gulf and Western, which owned Madison Square Garden, the New York Knicks, the New York Rangers. Um, they had, you know, a huge American corporation. And he basically goes after them and finds all sorts of tax frauds and tax problems and all sorts of terrible things taking place. And it turns out the head of Gulf and Western is a good buddy with Sulzberger, the publisher. And they used to go out to Friday night movies at somebody's house. And <laughs> this... This didn't this didn't sit well with with Sulzberger at all. It was typical Cy Hirsch. So, what was your question? Let's go back to your question. No, no. Did he ever forget? I've never forgotten uh, sitting there with him and having him yell at me. Yeah, I, I had low. Yeah, it's a good question because I had so many people. I, I interviewed literally dozens and dozens yeah. of people for this book, and a number of people simply said to me, "I don't talk about this guy. I'll never talk to you about this guy. I hate this guy." A lot of people just despised the guy would not would not talk to me of course there were some people who despised him who did want to talk to me sometimes sometimes <laughs> and honestly worked worked both ways and then there were people who loved Cy. I had one guy 
who worked with Cy on one of his books, and they had worked together. Cy used to always hire a researcher, and the researcher would kind of do his freedom information material, collect all the secondary source material, collect all the books, give Cy the background. Cy's a big reader. He reads everything. He reads documents. He reads reports. He reads books. Like a scholar, before he goes to work on a story, he's incredibly informed. So when he has a conversation with somebody, it's kind of like a give and take, and he can pick you know, information mm-hmm. from people because of that. Well, this guy was his researcher, and he worked closely day in and day out with Cy. And I talked to him, and he said, look, I love Cy. You know, he says, uh, we had our ups and downs like everybody else. He says, we've butted heads. He said, but after working with Cy for a period of time, he said, I'd come home at night, and I, I felt like I needed a shower, and I needed drugs. He said, he's just a difficult, difficult man to work with. And this is Cy Hirsch. In some ways, that's why he's great. Because he's so hard driving and so 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 hard, you know, hard charging. But here's the final question: You've put your life, your soul, into writing this. Six book. years. Yeah. So, do you love him? Do you hate him? Where are you? Here's what I love about Cy Hirsch. He's 76 years old, and he's he's like I have Stone in this sense. And I think in some ways he's like you, Alan. If I could make that uh, parallel, he's still indignant. He's still angry. He still sees the bad things that take place, and he gets really ticked off. He says, I'm a newsman. I'm a newspaper man. He still considers himself a newspaper man. And he says, what we do is we are able to stick our thumbs in the eyes of authority. We hold people to levels of accountability. He says, you know, these people can send our kids off off to war to die, and we should hold them to the highest level of accountability possible. And he's still doing that. So the time, so he's really got to be ticked off at the times who squelched some of his stories. And he's ticked off the times now because he thinks they're not tough enough. Uh, he's mm-hmm. really still angry at them for missing the, the Iraq war, uh, you know, weapons of mass destruction story. Sure. Uh, I think he's never forgiven them. I think you asked me a while back, why did he leave the times? He left the times because he wanted to write a book on Henry Kissinger and they wouldn't give him a leave of absence. Although they had done this in the past for people, I think they wanted Indeed him to Indeed they go. have. Yeah. yeah. At this point, they wanted him to go. And he says, I want a leave of absence. I want to write this book on Kissinger. I don't think they liked the fact that he was going to write a book on Kissinger. Abe Rosenthal was personal friends with Kissinger, as was Sulzberger. So I don't think they liked that. I think also at this point, after seven years of size, techniques, abrasiveness, they were just ready to let, to let him walk. So he left the Times for that reason. But, you know, what I love about Cy Hirsch is he's just indignant. He's angry. He's still... Uh, a recent uh, article a couple of years ago called him the last angry man in America, um, whether that's true or not. The funny story, he uh, he went to London at one point, and there was a little girl standing outside some demonstration. So I had just given a speech, and there's the little girl, and she's holding up a sign, and she says, we need to protect Cy Hirsch, the last independent journalist in America. And they, you know, that's hyperbole, of course, but to some degree it is true. The guy is difficult. The guy is abrasive. But he also holds people to incredible standards, has had more scoops over a 30, 40-year period than anybody in in American history. And to find out about all of them, you're going to have to read Seymour Hirsch, Scoop Artist, by Robert Moraldi, our old friend who's been here several times and who deserves a lot of credit for a major career in journalism and the good things that you've done, uh, Rob, for so many students. Professor, colleague, friend, thanks so much for joining us. I'm Alan Chartok. My pleasure as always, Alan. You've been listening to Dr. Alan Chartok, President and CEO of WAMC Northeast Public Radio and Professor Emeritus at the University at Albany. 
For more information on the In Conversation with Alan series or to order additional copies of this or any interview in the series, call 1-800-323-9262 or visit us on the web at wamc.org.